This morning I was reading uh, an article from David Sedaris, who is uh, one of America's great humorists. And Sedaris said, the pandemic has a smell. And he says, it's the smell of my own breath. Because as we wear these masks all the time, it really does have a, have a place. So we are really glad you're here this morning. Thanks for taking the time to be with us in worship. We're excited about July the 12th of getting us back together outside uh, because we miss seeing you. Uh, today, Amy Stone is here. She was our liturgist. And it's good to see Theresa, who is helping us with uh, music, too. So, And Harold's back in the back because we're testing some new equipment and uh, it's just good to see faces again um, around us. Over the course of my 44 years uh, in ministry, I learned a lot. Among the things I learned was miscommunication and misunderstandings were the cause of most of the conflict that I ever encountered. Too many people were too quick to jump to conclusions and the conclusions were very often faulty. There's a story about a teacher who wanted her students to learn a new word and use it in a sentence. And when she got to little Johnny, she said, Johnny, your word is frugal. Frugal means to save. Please come to class tomorrow prepared to use that word in a sentence. The next day she called on little Johnny who stood up and said, once upon a time there was a beautiful princess who lived in a castle by the lake. One day as she walked along the lake, she slipped and she fell in. She couldn't swim and was about to drown when a handsome prince rode up on a white stallion. Frugal me, frugal me, she said. And the handsome prince frugaled her and they lived happily ever after. Misunderstandings. Where, where do we think we are most apt to find God? One of the great misunderstandings I think about faith is that we have been given notions about certain things that really don't hold up and they don't fit the biblical narrative very well. We are living in chaotic times. A global pandemic that has taken now 470,000 lives, 120 some odd of those are American. The resulting economic meltdown has created havoc for many families and a new cultural revolution surrounding systemic racism that is long overdue, but frightening to a large number of people. We might be tempted during such a time as this to shake our fists at heaven and ask, where is God in this chaos? Scripture has a word for us today, but I warn you in advance, it may not be the one you expected. I'll begin today by telling you that uh, I'm disturbed by what passes as faith in popular Christianity today. I think you can put it together in a nutshell. I think it says, be a good person and God will be good to you. Stay away from bad company, rise above adversity, do this and your relationship with God is settled and the rules are clear. And then when you do face adversity or fear or chaos, then pray fervently and God will make it stop and put you in control again. It's an appealing short list, and there's nothing wrong with any of those pieces by themselves. But you see, the Bible won't hold up with that short list. In fact, in the Bible, it's very often God who causes the chaos to begin with. Take Abraham. 
who was doing quite nicely where he was, but then received a vision from God to pick up his family and go to a place he had never heard of because God asked him to. Or Moses, who was doing quite nicely in Pharaoh's house until God caused him to remember who he was. To Mary, who listens to an angel explain a plan that will throw her life into chaos and put her in the middle of a scandal. To Paul, who lies flat on his belly on the road to Damascus, blind as a bat, because God has sent a vision. Shall I go on? We miss the chaos of these stories, I think, because we know how they turn out. What we seem to long for is protection from chaos. For a God who will operate within the domestic boundaries that we have set for ourselves without doing anything that will unnecessarily frighten us. We want a relationship with God. We want to be chosen. We want to be saved. Only gently, please, so that we can see where this plan is going in advance and then we can approve. That seems like a nice place. I think I'll go along. It's a reasonable longing. Nobody I know of asks to be frightened, asks to be wounded, asks to be attacked, and yet that is precisely how it often happens in Scripture, this blessing of God. For a moment, I invite you to consider Jacob. Jacob is my favorite Old Testament character. He is the J.R. Ewing of the Old Testament. He is a scoundrel. He's a jerk. There's no other way around it. And when we pick up on our story today, it has been 20 years since Jacob left home. He fled from home more like it because he had duped his poor brother Esau, who was fighting mad and had vowed to kill Jacob the next time he saw him. He had duped his blind, dying father into giving him the blessing that would rightfully have belonged to Esau. Along the way, as he flees, he dreams a famous dream about a ladder going up to heaven, which to me proves that God is not a moralist in any traditional sense, since Jacob was a liar and a cheat and a first-class jerk. But he still receives this beautiful vision from God. The promise of God, the covenant, is going to flow through Jacob, whether he knows it or not. And it should have been enough to change him, this beautiful vision of the ladder. It didn't. But before Jacob leaves Bethel, the place of the dream, the king of deals cuts one more. Yelling up at whoever is on the other side of this ladder, Jesus, uh, Jacob says, if God will be with me and will keep me and give me the clothes to wear and the food to eat, then the Lord God will be my God. I have prayed Jacob's prayer. Most of you have too. We have prayed listing the conditions for our belief. The first and last phrase is sufficient. If you will be with me, the Lord God will be mine. But we persist in telling God what being with us must mean. We persist in telling God to keep us safe, to feed and clothe us, to preserve our lives in peace. These are our conditions, along with numerous others, like health and prosperity and etc. Should God choose some other way of being with us, then the deal is off. 
After all, there are lots of other gods eager to do business with us who promise more without asking for much. While channel surfing not long ago, I stumbled onto the Walt Disney movie Aladdin. The genie was funny. The villain lost. Aladdin learned the value of being himself. It's a great story. But as I was watching that, it occurred to me that a genie is much more attractive than God. Because with a genie, you get your three wishes whenever you want them. And if the genie gets on your nerves, you can make him get back into the lamp where he can play solitaire until you need his services again. Your will is his command. What's not to like about that? God, on the other hand, is not in the business of granting wishes. God is in the business of raising the dead. There's nothing wrong with letting God know what we want as long as we don't mistake our list of conditions for the covenant. The covenant has no conditions. The covenant is not a deal. It is simply God's promise to be our God and with it, our promise to be God's people. Not by consent, but by creation. The biblical covenant describes God's idea of reality, namely relationship. Our only choice is to believe in that reality or not. Either way, we're goners because we are not now and will never be in charge of that relationship. But if we do choose to believe it, then we might begin to give up our illusions of control and learn to see God not only in the beauty of the pink summer sky, but also in the chaos of a lightning storm. In one of the churches that I served, the worst possible set of circumstances took place. A man went on a scouting trip with his son. I think it was in Minnesota. The son was at the top of a waterfall. The father was down below. The son slipped, fell off the waterfall into the water. The father was there, had him by the hand, and couldn't get him out. I want you to think about that. Couldn't get him out. He had to leave him because the current was so strong there was no way to get him out. We had a funeral service without his body. Some weeks later, the body dislodged and floated to the top so that the family got to relive the whole thing. I remember <laughs> my co-pastor at the time, uh, we, we spent time talking a lot with this guy's friends. I mean, they were traumatized by this and they should have been. What I remember about that, the chaos of that, was watching the journey of this father who went from being devastated, completely, utterly devastated, and then that journey of faith that br brought him back through the grief process that would last much longer than most anybody's grief under normal circumstances, trying to make sense of a God who would allow such a thing to happen and finally coming out on the other side at a place of peace. Not every story is as dramatic as that, but God is so often found in that kind of chaos. Nobody would wish a death on a young man like that. 
And yet it's our capacity to see God, hear God, feel God in that chaos is what separates us. So we circle back to Jacob. He rushes on to his uncle Laban's home where he falls in love with Rachel and marries her even though it required 14 years of hard labor. And in between, he ended up having to first marry Rachel's sister Leah, who was no prize. Through it all, there's good old Jacob still cutting deal after deal. Finally, with two wives, ten, two mistresses, 11 children, and a nice herd of spotted and speckled cattle, Jacob hears God say, it's time for you to go back home. Return to the land of your kindred, and I will be with you. There it is again, the promise of relationship. I will be with you. So off he goes, only there is still this little matter of Esau to deal with. Some wounds don't easily heal, and Jacob was sure that Esau still wanted to kill him. He begged God to deliver him from Esau's hand. When he arrives home, sure enough, there is Esau just on the other side of the Jabbok River. Jacob tries to send a peace offering. That's just like Jacob. Let's see if we can buy Esau off. Will Esau accept it? Who knows? You couldn't blame him if he didn't. Night falls and Jacob tries to sleep, but he is suddenly attacked by a stranger and they fight all night long, kicking, scratching, punching. Whoever this stranger is, he's strong. But somehow, as usual, Jacob gets the upper hand. He grabs him and he holds on. And it looks like he's about to win this battle again, just like always. But then this stranger dropped down on his leg and cracked his hip. Even so, Jacob in agony now won't let go. Not until you bless me, he says. The stranger asks his name. 20 years ago, Jacob's poor, blind, dying father asked him the same thing, and he lied. Not this time. This time it's different. I'm Jacob, he says. Who are you? The stranger won't return the favor, but he gives the blessing anyway, and then he lets him go. Jacob limps toward Esau across the river. Esau, as it turns out, is changed too. And Jacob is blessed once again by Esau's forgiveness. The exile is over. Jacob is home. And he's no longer Jacob. He's now Israel. No more making deals. Jacob is a new person. God has given Jacob not what he wants, but what he needs. Everything necessary for Jacob's life turns out to be covenant. A wounded, blessed relationship. So what's to be taken from all this? I would say no matter who you are, college student, business person, parent, single person, old, young, rich, poor, there are storms coming. There will be fear. There will be pain. There will be attacks. There will be chaos. When it does, don't let anybody try to convince you that if it were really God, then it wouldn't be so scary and it wouldn't hurt. Hang on with everything you've got, even if it does hurt. Insist on a blessing to go with your wound. Don't let go until you have it. And then thank God for your life, limp and all. I promise you, you'll be very, in very good company. All this is in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Amen.